the children to come up here for a moment, please. All right. <laughs> Anybody else? Oh, a few more. Come on up. Come on up, Russell, Lily, Taylor. There you go. Good. Just have a seat up here. Good. How many of you have ever been to Disney World? Ever been to Disney World? Anybody? Oh, something to look forward to. There you go. There's one that's been there. How about you, Andrew? You've been to Disney World? Uh-huh. Okay. What a neat place, isn't it? Have you ever uh, seen Cinderella's Castle? Did we lose it? We had a picture of Cinderella's Castle. I was going to show you. Quite a magnificent building. Just a neat place. It's just a magical place. They call it the Magic Kingdom, don't they? And if you've been to... Uh, Disney World, some of the adults have, some of the older kids. You've actually maybe seen Cinderella walking the grounds, you know. There's always people flocking up to any of the people or maybe one of the Disney characters or whatever. And there's something special happened one day I want you to know about. There was uh, in the castle, which I've never been up in the castle. I've only walked through the bottom part of it. It's kind of a breezeway. There's a, apparently a, a big room. I don't know if it's like a banquet room or what it is. And there were certain children that had a pass to go in. They had gotten a ticket, the parents or something, so they could go up there and have some special time with Cinderella herself. So they're all gathered in this great big room, and they're wondering when she's going to show up. They're all just milling around. And all of a sudden, she appeared at the side of the room. And everybody went running over to that side of the room, and they said, it's a good thing it wasn't a ship because it would have just tipped the whole thing because you know, all of them were just crowding to one side. But on the far side of the room from Cinderella was still a boy standing there as well as he could stand. He was crippled. He was disfigured, very, very, really tragic-looking little boy holding the hand of his older brother, but they didn't move. They didn't go when the other children ran across the room because, well, he couldn't run, and he probably didn't feel like he was really welcome to do that. He was just glad to be in the room, glad to have a ticket so he could see Cinderella from a distance. And so all the other children are just mock and mingling around her and trying to get her attention and jumping up and down. But Cinderella saw this boy across the room. And she walked through this crowd of children, went across the side of the room to where he stood there alone with his brother, and walked up to him looked at his situation, his way he looked and everything, and knelt down and then kissed him on the cheek. None of the other children were treated that way. No one else had that special attention from the princess, Cinderella. And yet, that's what she gave to this little boy. And everybody just kind of hushed and couldn't believe what had happened. When she got up from kneeling beside him, then she walked back to the other children and said a few things, and then she disappeared from the room again. That was it. That was the end of it. And how that boy must have felt that day. Do you know that that picture is very much like the picture that God has for us? That we are like that little boy. And we don't deserve to be in the presence of royalty. But Jesus, the King of Kings, invited us in. And he gave us a ticket to be in his presence. And he not only invited us to come with everybody else, but he invited us so that we could have a very special time with him. And when Jesus came to us, 
It was like this princess, Cinderella, going to this little boy who never expected something so wonderful to happen in his life. I want you to know that Jesus did so much more for us than she did for that little boy that day. Cinderella only gave a kiss, but Jesus gave more than that, didn't he? Because when he invited us to come to him, he gave his life. He gave his life so that he could pay for our sins and pay for all the ugliness of our lives and not just to kiss us and then leave us with our ugliness, but he took the ugliness away. He took the sins away and he gave us a new life that we could never have had. The prince came and gave us his life so that we would have new life in Christ. Jesus gave more than a kiss. He gave himself. And he paid more than a visit. He paid for our sins and our shortcomings. And he didn't just stop for a minute to show some kindness. He changed eternity for each of us. Because now, forgiven of our sins, we can live with Jesus forever. And someday we'll be able to be with him forever in heaven. But even now, we live with Jesus. And Jesus changes our lives from the inside out. I hope that you'll never forget that. And I hope that you know that Jesus counts you as a very special part of his family. And he knows you so well and loves you so well. May you just live that the rest of your life. And Someday, some of you have not made a decision to follow Christ yet, but someday you will. Our prayer is that you will walk with him all the days of your life here on earth. And then you will go into eternity with him someday. That is our prayer for each of you. Thank you for being so attentive. You can return to your seats now, please. Last week we began a new study called At the End of the Day. And we had a sermon that was called At the End of the Day, People Are More Important Than Possessions. If you were not here, somebody said that they were not here, they tried to listen to it online, and it wasn't there yet. That's because Cheryl's out of town until tomorrow, and she's our webmaster, so she's the one that puts it on there. I didn't know how to do it, so that's my, my mistake. And so it's not up there, but it's there. Uh, for you. We'll be there tomorrow, I think, afternoon. So uh, if you want to listen to that. But the point of that message was that people are more important than possessions, and I hope you'll never forget that lesson. Maybe you haven't heard it yet, but you can hear it. If you have heard it, Realize that you know the life uh, that we have here on earth is so much chasing after possessions, but that's not what's going to bring you satisfaction. That's not what's going to bring meaning to your life. You know, you can have more than anybody else has, and it won't be enough. You will still be dissatisfied, and you will still lack the purpose and meaning in life that you'd like to have. May we never forget that people are so much more important than our possessions. What we can do for God in the lives of other people is where meaning happens, is where life happens. And Paul said to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, he says, take hold of the life that is truly life. And if you want the life that is truly life, it's not your house or your car or all the goods or your bank account or your retirement accounts, any of that. It's not about that. It's about the people and how God can work through you to touch their lives. And so this morning, our topic at the end of the day is that grace is more important than good works. And maybe haven't really thought about that very much, but I hope that you understand this. Grace is more important than good works. If you, if you don't know that, if you don't understand that, I hope that you will by the time we spend a few minutes in the Word of God today. I hope we can help you figure that out, because it's very important. Children and adults need to know 
that grace is where it happens. Not in your good works, your good deeds that you could do. In the Bible, the word for grace is charis. It means favor or blessing or, or kindness. And when this word grace is applied to God, when it's used in reference to God, it is telling us that God chooses to bless us rather than condemn us. That God chooses to give us something we don't deserve. Something that we could never earn. He gives us something uh, that we don't deserve rather than what we do deserve. Now, do you know the difference between mercy and grace? Because a lot of times they're confused. A lot of times they're coupled together in the scripture. The difference between mercy and grace is really simple. Mercy withholds a punishment. But grace gives a blessing. Mercy withholds a punishment we deserve. So, you know, you're standing before somebody and you are condemned. You deserve to be punished. And they say, no, I'm not going to punish you. You can go free. That's mercy. But grace goes a step further. Once mercy has been granted, it says, I'm not only not going to punish you, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to bless you beyond just withholding the punishment that you deserve. God's grace does both. And that's why mercy and grace are often coupled together in the Bible. Often Paul will start a letter to the Corinthians or, or to the Ephesians and he'll say grace and mercy to you. Because in God's economy, God's way of looking at things, grace and mercy are coupled together. I suppose that's why they're often confused. Now, the very important question to lead off with this morning, that everybody, whether they're a child or a teenager or an adult, very important question for everybody in this room. And the question is simply is this. Who or what are you counting on to save you? Now, who are you counting on to save you? What are you counting on to save you? What is it that you think is going to provide for you to have the salvation that you so desperately want? Now, I know this is a big question. You may not even be ready to answer the question right away. But this is basically the question that every religion is asking and answering in one way or another. There may not be the exact question, but it may be similar to it. Every religion seeks a way to give us peace, to, to provide answers about eternity or the next life or what's to happen. And they think there's a whole bunch of cycles of life or whatever. How do you get out of that? Or, or how do you get past that? How do you achieve peace for eternity or peace with God or, or maybe whatever other gods they think exist? A lot of other religions have a system of good works that get you there. Things that you do, things that you say, things that you follow, practices, and, and you know, different tenets of their faith. and Believe these things and say them and, and go through all these routines. And that's how you eventually achieve peace within yourself, but not Christianity. Christianity is different, isn't it? Christianity talks about grace not about good works. Philip Yancey wrote this. He says, The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offer a way to earn approval. Or maybe another word would be peace, you know, security. But Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. It's not about good works. It's about grace. Only Christianity dares to offer grace. 
Grace offered freely by God. God offers us his love unconditionally. And he walks across history, walks across the pages of time to each one of us, and he offers us something we don't deserve, simply because it's his desire to offer it. Grace is more important than good works because God, good works can never save us. Only grace can. The only thing that can save us is God's grace. That's the first thing I want you to know this morning. You know, I heard about a, a joke about a man who had a dream, you know, and he'd gone up to heaven, and constantly these, these jokes are about, you know, meeting the pearly gates that St. Peter's are waiting, you know. So this man walks up to the pearly gates of heaven, St. Peter's there, and he says, I've got a question for you, St. Peter. He says, what does it take to get into heaven? And Peter says, well, it takes a thousand points. Really? Never heard that. A thousand points. He says, okay. Well, let me see. I, I've, been, I've been faithful, attending church practically my whole life. What did that get me? Peter says, that's one point. Okay. Uh, well, he says, you know, I was a deacon. In the last 20 years of my life, I was a deacon in the church. I was down there all the time. Up and says, that's one more point. You've got two points. <laughs> And the, the man can't believe it. And he says, uh, you know, I did a lot of good things for other people. I was always taking care of other people. Peter says, that's another point. you got three points. Got a ways to go. So finally, in great despair, the man is saying, well, you know, if I, if I, all I get for all these things is three points in my whole life and all the time in the church and helping other people and everything, he says, I guess I'm just going to have to throw myself on the mercy of God and the love of Christ displayed on the cross. Peter said, good answer. That's a thousand points. You're in. <laughs> you want an answer? There you go. That's what I was looking for. Grace is counting on God to save you because you can't save yourself. No matter how good you are, doesn't matter what you know, doesn't matter how often you go to church, doesn't matter what good things you do for other people, grace counts on God. What has already been given. For all of us must depend on God to save us, because we cannot save ourselves. Now, our main text today is in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you know this passage about grace, you're probably already guessing this is where we're going today. And this is what Paul says this. It's true of every one of us. Listen for you in this passage. Listen for me. As for you, okay, now we've got all of us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, we're all in it, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest. Here again, it's inclusive. We were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
<laughs> we all were already dead. Now, we felt alive, we looked alive, we were still moving, we were still breathing, still functioning, but we were dead in our sins. All of us, every one of us fits this description. It doesn't matter who you are. Another passage in Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Every one of us. So there's nobody in this room that can say, that's not me, that doesn't apply to me. It applies to every one of us. And he says, condemned in our sin, we were already dead. We were you know, going to experience eternal death. No exceptions. And he says, all of us lived among everybody else like that. We were gratifying the cravings of our flesh. We were by nature deserving of God's wrath. So nobody can say, well, I didn't deserve it as much as somebody else because we all stood condemned. We already stood there deserving of wrath. But then... Paul throws this big word, but, in there, and he says, but God, in his great love for us, couldn't leave it there. In this great unconditional love for us, in spite of who we are, what we had chosen to do, how we're living, the fact that we're already dead in our sins, he saved us when we least deserved it. And he raised us to life again when we were dead. It is by grace you've been saved. Thank God. And in Jesus Christ, grace is given freely to everyone. It's offered to everyone, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, no matter who you've hurt, no matter what you said, no matter how far down that path you have gone and you thought it was impossible to turn around, God pursues you there and he makes the same offer to you. Maybe you think, you know... I'm beyond that. I, I'm lost cause. You're not. Because everybody is offered the same gift freely. Second Peter 3.9 tells us that God is not willing for anyone to perish. But he wants all of us to come to the knowledge of the truth and to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There are no exclusions, no exceptions. Everyone is invited. That's what I think Jesus' parables were about. You know, he told some parables about a master or a king who had a banquet. He was a rich guy of the area, or maybe the king of the area, and he decides to have a big banquet. And so he, he throws out the invitation, and he sends out his couriers, and he says, you know, bring everybody in. Find it, you know, people that, that you would normally go to, knock on the door, invite them to come to the banquet, because it's going to be a great banquet. And, and they come back and they said, there's still more, you know, still more room here. So he went back again to the highways and byways and into the hedges and, you know, all the little roads going every different direction. Anybody that could find was invited because the king's heart was, everybody needs to be here. I want everybody to come. But people still made a choice, did they? To accept the invitation and whether or not to come. That is what that parable is about. The banquet is for everyone. Years ago, Billy Graham was driving through a small southern town and he was stopped by a policeman for speeding. Well, he admitted his guilt. He said, I wasn't really paying attention. I probably was over the speed limit. And he was told by the officer, well, that's fine and good. You can pay the fine. But you still have to appear in court. You know, in our, in our town, you still have to go to court for this driving violation. So he appeared in court and the time came and the judge got to the end of it and he says, you know, are you guilty or not guilty? And Billy Graham says, well, I'm guilty. Definitely I did that. And the judge says, well, that'll be $10. A dollar for every mile you went over the limit. Now, you know how old this illustration is. 
Because it's a lot more than that now. He says, okay, I'll pay it. The judge says, well, you're guilty, but I'm going to pay it. And he pulled his wallet out of his pocket. He pulled out a $10 bill and he attached it to the certificate that said he was guilty and paid it. Not only did he do that, he says, I want to see you after uh, court today. Billy Graham came back at the time when court ended and he says, I'm going to take you to dinner. I'm going to buy you a steak dinner. And Billy Graham says, that's the kind of love hat God has. <laughs> that's the way God's grace operates. He not only pays the fine, but he takes you to dinner afterwards and invites you to the banquet. Isn't that a wonderful story? I remember seeing a, a little uh, cartoon of Dennis the Menace. And his little friend Joey are leaving Mrs. Wilson's house. And they're both loaded up with cookies, homemade cookies, you know. And as they're walking out the door and out onto their porch, Joey's saying to him, he says, Man, he says, I don't believe this. He says, I wonder what we ever did to deserve cookies like this. <laughs> what do we do? And Dennis Menace says, This isn't about us. This is about how much Mrs. Wilson loves us. And that's the way God treats us. It's not about us. It's not about all the failures, all the mistakes, all the shortcomings of our life. It's about the heart of God, isn't it? And it's a heart of grace. So that's the first reason that grace is more important than good works, because good works can't get you home. But grace can. The second reason comes from the last three verses that I read from you from Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Let's read those again, please. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that so no one can boast. Notice verse 10 here. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We thought we would reach the end of the story, but Paul says there's more. Not only did he put away our punishment, or even pay it himself, not only did he give us a gift, you know, and bless us with the steak dinner, but he is creating in us somebody new, somebody better. He has made us his workmanship. He has made us his masterpiece. He wants to give us a new life that is so much better than we ever knew before. And the good works, the good things that come, are not the way to earn salvation. They're the result of what God's doing in His grace. Grace is undeserved favor, but with a goal in mind. God had a goal. He had a purpose. He had a plan. And He wants to exercise that in our life. He wants to make a difference in our lives. God saves us because He loves us so much that He doesn't want us to suffer for our sins. So He pays the penalty. But that's not the end of the story because he wants us to be his workmanship. He wants us to be his masterpieces, if you will. And his goal is to work in us and through us to accomplish his mission in the world. Now, it's not that God is expecting some kind of payback. Okay, I do this for you, now you do this for me. There's not some kind of a quid pro quo here and some kind of thing that, you know, we got to pay him back, you know, little by little on an installment plan. It's that there's so much more. Such a blessing to live in for God instead of against God, like we were before. And the goal of God's grace is greater than our salvation alone. The goal is to enable us to become better people than we could on our own and, and to accomplish His work in the world, to invite us to be part of that. 
and to change the lives of other people. And so He gives us His Spirit, for instance. His Spirit comes and lives in us after we have decided to follow Christ and yielded our life to Him. And the Spirit of God comes in and He enables us and He empowers us and He helps us to see things we didn't see before. He gives us new understanding and new knowledge. He gives us His wisdom that we could never have attained on our own. And no matter how many books you read, no matter how much time you spend in school, this Holy Spirit and God's influence changes everything. And then He gifts us individually, uh, uniquely. He gifts us to serve the Lord so that lost people can be found and then be drawn to Him. And so that the body of Christ, the church, can grow stronger and be built up in love. This is an amazing part of God's grace that some people haven't yet grasped. They haven't really caught this. Yeah, He saved me. You know, I got, I got saved. But there's more. There's so much more. Do you know what that more is? Are you experiencing that more? Are you starting to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you allowing the Spirit to work in your life? Are you allowing the giftedness of the Spirit to be exercised in your life? Are you part of what God's doing in the world? Are you sitting back as a spectator? Because if you are, you're missing one of the greatest blessings that grace can do. So much more than good works. It includes good works, but they're just a result of what God's doing. What do good works do for you? What do they get you? Nothing. Nada. Where's Felipe? Nada. Spanish. I'm learning Spanish, brother. Nada. Good word. Everybody say, nada. Nada. <laughs> that was in my first lesson. Okay. <laughs> Good works are not a, as far as saving you. But good works follow. They're the result of the grace that God has given you. And this distinction is very important. Good works are a major reason that we've been recreated in Christ, but some people still want to, I'll do this because then God will love me more. Or then God will really have to confirm that I'm okay because look at all the stuff I'm doing for him. And they get it all mixed up again. And you know, legalistic Christians or, or people that are into doing a lot of stuff, you know, to, to show their worthiness or their value. They get all tied up in this again. You've got to remember it's all about grace. It began with grace, it grows with grace, it finishes with grace. And good works are just a result of that relationship that you have with Christ. And we need to be very careful about this. Jesus gave a real clear picture about this. He wrote in John 15 about the vine and the branches, didn't he? He said, I am the vine and you are the branches, right? What did he say in John 15, 5? He says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nada. <laughs> it's about... The relationship. It's not about your good works, about your performance. It's not about having this nice evaluation later. Look at all the times you went to church. Look how many times you read your Bible. How often you prayed. All these good things you did for other people. You know, you stopped and fixed the tire and you did this, cooked this thing for somebody. You know, it's not about all of that. It's about the relationship. And when we get all tied up in the things we could do. Sometimes we neglect the relationship. And Jesus said, you want to bear fruit? Much fruit? Spend time with me. 
Abide in me. Get to know me, Jesus says. And that will change everything. In fact, he makes this into a stern warning in Matthew 7. Notice what he says here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, people putting all, all their stock, all of their energy, all of their confidence in what they did for Christ. And Jesus said, I didn't even know you. You're not one of mine. Wouldn't that be awful to hear from God? You, know, you, you stand before the judgment seat of God and you're already at your list. Look at what I did for you. And Jesus throws away the list. He says, I, I'm not sure who you are. I remember seeing you. You're not one of mine. Other people, you know, that labor for the Lord in order to meet God's high standards or, you know, do something that amazes other people, maybe. Maybe they're impressing someone else. I don't know. They're missing it. The people that know grace and know God's change of their life are people that are committed to that relationship with Christ and are growing and growing in that relationship. He's the vine, we're the branches. And the only way you're going to produce any fruit is stay connected to that vine and let that vine's life-giving flow come through your life and then fruit happens. It just happens. You don't have to worry about the fruit. It's not your business to worry about the results. You worry about the relationship you have with Christ. And then Christ's life flows through you. That's the life that is truly life that Paul was talking about to Timothy. There's one other item, one final aspect to our lesson that grace is more important than good works. Let me hit on that before we stop. Grace is an attitude that we must learn from God. It is an idea. It is a concept. It is a reality that must be in us and then given to other people. That same attitude of grace that was given to us through Christ is what we must learn to express to every other human being we will ever meet on this planet. 1 Corinthians 13. Remember you're reading that about the love chapter? And it talks, if I have amazing this or that, I can do all these things, but I have not love, it's what? Nada. Yeah, you got it. If you don't have love then it's meaningless, all these things you've done. Gifts of prophecy, you know, and impressing people with all your miracles even. It's not a without love. They are claim symbol, an annoying God. God's same attitude of grace must be what we give everyone we will ever meet. Ephesians 4, 29-32. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. This is, this is where people are at odds with each other. People fighting with each other. People hurting each other, criticizing one another, condemning, you know, Cutting them off. Just saying, get out of here. I don't have anything to do with you. Look at verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other 
just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the attitude of grace. Amazing thing to catch. Amazing thing to, to understand and to grasp and embrace in your life. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You know, just a couple, three months ago, I don't know the date, um, our son and daughter-in-law's small group that they've been part of for the last 10 years in Indiana had a horrible tragedy. Some of you know about this. They had a young man and a uh, son of their dear friends, the Garn family. His name is Abbott, 15 years old. He was killed tragically in a in a just an accident. Never have happened. I mean, it, it just, how do these things happen? Uh, what, what little we know of it is that, that Abbott and his two friends, the other guys, just great kids, uh, high school kids, had been in a, a ball game somewhere. They're leaving there and they go to some other event and they have to change clothes because they're in ball uniforms or changing their clothes for the party or wherever they're going to. Um, and they decided to stop on the way and quickly change, kind of on the side of the road kind of thing. And they're all changing quickly and they're jumping back in the van. Two of them got back in the van and drove off, and Abbott was right there and was killed by the van. I mean, he just, like everybody else, just changing clothes, getting ready to go on the next thing, and he's run over and killed. And he survived for a few hours. His parents got this call, emergency call, and they flew down to the hospital, and other people, their small group, flew down there, and the word was getting out there. But within just a few hours, Abbott had died. It was horrible. It should never have happened, and you can't even explain it. You can't live with it. You can't you know, grasp it, really, and, and come to terms with it. And it, emotion is so raw. And so our daughter-in-law's brother, who's a tremendous Christian guy, leader of the group, he's writing about this in his blog, and he's talking about how horrible it was for everybody. And you just gather around, and you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You just sit there for hours trying to bring some kind of comfort or peace to this family. They just lost their son, their oldest child. And they got word out very quickly, within the first day, to these other boys who must have felt so bad. I mean, how could you possibly, how could you possibly live with yourself that you just didn't think? You just got in the car and took off. And your friend died. They got word to those two boys you need to come to the house too. We're all gathered here together. We're praying. We're seeking God. We're trying to find peace. You're welcome. Come. And they pretty much compelled them to come to the house because they just wanted to hide in a corner somewhere, obviously. And those boys came and Brandon observed them wrapping their arm around these boys that had basically been responsible for their son's death. I mean, it's an accident, but you know they could have been more careful. They could have done anything. And they wrapped around him and said, we don't blame you. There's no blame here. We love you. And we know that you didn't intend this. This is an accident. You're not to carry this the rest of your life. You're not to feel guilty for the rest of your life. God's grace is here for you as it is for us. And they welcomed them. And then carload after carload of other teenagers started showing up over the next few days, you know, just needing that. And grace was given out in just a miraculous way to that community. Now, Abbott's parents are still hurting. They'll be hurting the rest of their lives. You know, there's a, a hole, an emptiness, you know, that God is is working with there. But they get this thing about grace, don't they? 
they get this thing that just as in Christ God forgave you, so you must forgive everyone else. And they're giving that grace out everywhere they can, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it's impossible. Because that's what Christians do. They grasp the grace of God and they give it to the people around them, even people that they can't imagine would ever deserve it, because that's what grace is about. A long time ago, a man truly experienced God's grace. His name was John Newton. Some of you know his story. Though he was brought up in the church as a child, became a very callous man, filled with anger and pain and uncertainty. And because of that, he had a lot of trouble in his life. <clears throat> At one time, John Newton became the captain of a slave ship. It's hard for us to imagine this, but the slaving company that he worked for ordered him to go to the coast of Africa and to pick up as many slaves as he could, to pack as many as he could in the holds of that ship and take them to the Americas. Once on board, the slaves were ruthlessly chained side by side, row after row, stacked up like a can of sardines. And most of them didn't survive the journey because it was too long and grueling, and they weren't allowed to get up. They weren't allowed any sanitation or hygiene or proper food and water. They got as many of those as they could, and they sold them into slavery. And he lived with himself for years that way, doing that to make the money that they paid him. During a raging storm at sea, however, God finally got in John Newton's heart. And he finally confessed his sin, and he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he was given both God's mercy and God's grace. So over the next few years, John... John Newton found that God was bringing people into his life to, to disciple him, to grow him, to help him understand, to help him come to terms, you know, and, and to have this new life that grace was giving him. And he became, later in his life, one of Britain's most powerful evangelists. And feeling, you know, shame, you know, regret for his past slavery involvement, he began to triumphantly fight against slavery in his country and was a very important part of helping them eventually outlaw slavery. He wrote many hymns during his ministry years, but one has become his most famous one. You probably know it. It's called Amazing Grace. <laughs> Still a favorite for many. Because it talks about what we were given and what we received. What about you? What about you? Who or what are you counting on to save you? I hope you understand that the only one who can save you is Jesus Christ. He's already done it. He's already given. He's already given his life. He didn't just give a kiss like Cinderella did. He gave his life. And he offers a new life to you. You need to know today that you will never be bad enough to be beyond God's grace for you. You know, even if you leave here today, you do nothing, and you become the most horrible person you could ever imagine becoming, grace is still going to be pursuing you. God is still going to be offering that grace to you. And no matter how far you go, you can turn back, just like John Newton did. You also need to know that you will never be good enough to be beyond the need for God's grace. You can strive. You can be better than anybody else you ever met. I, I, I talk to people about grace, and they say, I don't need that. I'm better than anybody else I know. You know, Basically, I've got it together. I help people. I do nice things for people. I'm good 
to my family, to my spouse, to my children. I'm good at my business. I don't lie and cheat. I don't, you know, they just want to give this whole list. But you will never be good enough to be beyond the need for God's grace. This is good news. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. This is grace. Do you know grace? Do you know God's grace? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? We're going to sing about that amazing grace in a few minutes. Talk about the chains being broken. And we're going to see if your heart is ready. Is your heart open? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can know your grace. That your offer is there for every one of us. There is no one limited, no, no exclusions. And you offer freely to us who could never deserve, never merit what you offer. But by your love, your unconditional love, you make the invitation. And you don't want anybody to miss it. If there's someone here today that has missed it up to this point in their life, I pray, Lord, that their heart would be open, that they would be ready to take a step toward you today, to receive, to accept that invitation that you're offering now in your grace. And they won't leave here until they've done that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we sing. Uh, some of us will be around in the front. Some of the